Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From the newsroom at Eater, I'm Amanda Clute. And I'm Daniel Janine. And this is Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. With a little help from the biggest names in the world of food and the journalists here at Eater, we try to understand what's happening right now in kitchens, restaurants, and dining rooms around the world. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about the dinner party. First, we'll talk about the history and the evolution of the dinner party with a journalist from Vox.com. And then we will chat with the woman who is on the front lines of a modern day entertaining, Ms. Allison Roman, whose new cookbook comes out next week. Then we'll tackle this week's biggest food stories, including Panera's interesting way of cooking macaroni and cheese, Walmart's entry into the food delivery space, and Sushi Bros with our special guest, Ryan Sutton. First up on the show, we have Nisha Shital. She is the engagement editor at Vox.com, and she wrote an incredible piece about the ways in which millennials are changing dinner party traditions. Welcome to the show, Nisha. Hi, Amanda. So tell me about the history of dinner parties. Where where did they start? How did they evolve through the 20th century? They are really an ancient thing, and they started in ancient eras. You know, the Greeks and Romans used to love to have big elaborate feasts that they would often have in a castle or in a great hall, and they would have long tables with tons and tons of people and have elaborate meals and all that kind of stuff. So in the ancient eras, it was really this like big production that only rich people with access to like a great hall or a castle could do. The, you know, the dinner table started to become a thing for, a, you know, a family dinner in like the 18th and 19th centuries. Before that, people would often eat in shifts. People didn't all eat together. Dinner as a social and communal thing um, was not really a concept yet, but it started to become a thing more um, as the dinner table was introduced in 18th and 19th centuries. Um, the Victorians also started to, to add like really elaborate details. If you were rich, you started to have china and crystal and silverware, and it was them who sort of invented around that time like different plates for every course and different forks for every course and all these sort of elaborate details that kind of showed off your wealth and your social status. Um, but it was in the 20th century, particularly in that sort of mid-century period when there was, you know, this big post-war economic boom and more people were reaching the middle class, people were able to buy single-family homes, and then they were able to have a dining room and they could have an actual dining table. Mary, how are you? Bye. They say your kitchen dazzles every eye. And they could have the space to invite people over and have them around this large dinner table and provide them with an elaborate meal and and food and wine and and multiple courses and all of that stuff. So it sort of became, especially in that sort of mid-century period, what we know of as like the modern idea of the dinner party became this way to show off you know, that you had sort of made it. Like you had this like wealth and, and social status and you had like the American dream of, of your own home and the white picket fence and everything. And how did the housewife play a role in all this? Oh, I think the, the, the housewife was a very big part of it. Betty, our hostess, is having a few of her friends to her home for a birthday party. 
She, she had the time to make elaborate meals, several courses. She could spend all day uh, working on elaborate Julia Child recipes. She could, you know, make a handshaken cocktail for every guest that came over for dinner. You know, it was uh, really important for, for men to be able to have their colleagues over for dinner and their wife would, you know, serve this elaborate four-course meal with, with drinks and all of this stuff. It, she became a really big figure in sort of like entertaining and being a hostess and there were all these like really elaborate guides to how to entertain like all the rules and all the etiquette and, and how to be a good hostess. And thinks she deserves a word of congratulation. But the housekeeper must tell Betty she has noticed a few errors. The Emily Post guides are, are fascinating. There's all kinds of rules for like what table settings should look like. They talk about how you have to send invitations in the mail and even today they still recommend sending invitations in the mail instead of <laughs> email because I believe the Emily Post guide said email invitations have too many ads and they're not personal enough. So you have to send something in the mail. You have to have an RSVP deadline. There are a lot of rules about, you know, how you arrange a tablescape and, and what order the forks go in and how you course a meal. And Martha Stewart recommends, like, you should always have a theme and you should start preparing food a week in advance. You know, Martha Stewart became sort of an ideal of, like, she is the person who knows how to entertain. Like, she's our domestic goddess. Welcome to Turkey Hill Farm where we have filmed our new video series, Secrets for Entertaining. People look to her as the ideal vision of, of how to do this thing, uh, but they also see her as a person who, you know, has a lot of elaborate details and a lot of rules and a lot of preparation and things that feel certainly aspirational, but not necessarily attainable to most regular people. What I hope these videos will do is encourage you to develop your own personal style so that you feel free to express your own sense of hospitality. And young people now are having fewer formal dinner parties. Why do you think that trend is going out of style? Well, I think a big part of it is is economic. So, you know, if dinner parties in in the 20th century were about showing off your your wealth and your class status, millennials have neither of those. Increasingly, more of them are living in apartments instead of buying homes. You know, millennials are actually the the first generation to be worse off than their you know their their parents' generation economically and and financially. And so they don't they don't have that wealth to show off. But I think that you know what I've found is that millennials they do really care about the social and, and community aspects of what a dinner party is and what it represents. They care about gathering together with their friends and having meals together. But they don't have, you know, they don't have the stuff. They don't have the trappings. And I think what they've realized is they don't have to let that stop them. They don't have to follow all those old rules of dinner parties. And so they've found a way to sort of rewrite the playbook and have much more informal, much more casual dinner parties that fit their their lifestyle and their their budgets in 2019. Thank you so much for giving us all this context. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. A dinner party is just one way of enjoying company of your friends. A good meal, good company, real enjoyment. That's what a dinner party is for. Next up on the show, Allison Roman. Allison's new book, Nothing Fancy, comes out. What's what's the published date? 1022. 1022. Allison, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so we want to talk about the idea of the dinner party and entertaining, having people over, how that's changed over the last, I don't know, generation, decade. This is something that you talk about a lot in your book, but also in the writing that you've done all over the place. So mm -hmm. in the New York Times, and Bon Appetit, wherever else you have your recipes, oftentimes it's about making cooking easier, but also 
making entertaining, quote unquote, entertaining easier and more mm-hmm. accessible for people. Yeah. So talk about the idea of calling it having people over versus entertaining, because I feel like that's a good entry point in. Yeah, I think it's like the semantics of anything in our in our modern world where you're like, is that your boyfriend? You're like, no, we're just seeing each other, mm-hmm. right? It's like the same thing. There's something about removing a label to something that somehow relaxes me personally. I'm, mm. I'm a Virgo, and I feel like I am obsessed with labeling things like this is that, this mm-hmm. is that, putting things in a box. And I found that as soon as I stopped doing that, I felt a lot more relaxed about stuff. And so... To me, like the the calling it this dinner party, calling it entertaining or whatever, just immediately freaks me out. I'm like, well, then I'm setting you up as you know having expectations on what to expect when you come over, and I'm probably not going to deliver on any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So if I say, oh, just come over, I'm just having people over, right? Then your expectations are extremely low, and I will underpromise and overdeliver every time. <laughs> That's kind of my mo. That does seem like a lot of the vibe of the book and the writing, where you're just like, oh, it's just. Sloppy old Allison, like I'm a mess, but then like everything is perfect and like the recipes all work and it seems like there's obviously a lot of work behind it. Yeah. Is that intentional? Well, I mean, that's the thing is I really am a mess. I really I really am kind of a disaster. But I think that there's hope for me. Yeah. Yes. See, that's the whole thing. But I'm also a perfectionist and writing recipes is my job. And mm-hmm. so I feel like when it comes to that, it really does matter to me to have things work and to have, you know, you achieve success when you're doing something so it should look and feel effortless, but there was a lot of work on the back end to make it so. With my first cookbook, I assumed a lot. I assumed that people reading cookbooks knew different things than, than maybe they did. This time around, I really kind of wanted to get ahead of a lot of those things and kind of get in front of questions you might have or make you feel better about things if they weren't going to be perfect or turn out well. Because I think so much about wanting to have people over is doing it once and being successful at it. But I think if you cook a recipe and then have the people over and have permission to feel imperfect and a little bit messy and more yourself about it, then you're like, oh, well, that I can do. What is what does the word unfussy mean to you when you write about making food that's unfussy or throwing parties that are unfussy? I, it, to me, it's more about what it, what is fussy and fussy to me just means like really involved, like overachieving, like tiny, delicate details, unnecessary worrying you know, and I'm mm-hmm. just kind of like, who has the time? It's like, you know, I'd rather focus on big picture than tiny little fussy details. What are some of the the things that you're eschewing from your, I don't know, philosophy in these books? Like, what are the things that you're completely throwing out or skipping that might be in entertaining books of like a decade ago? Um, I think most of it, mm-hmm. most of the stuff. I feel like having a menu, which to me, I didn't want this book to have a menu. Mm -hmm. I thought about it and I went back and forth on it a ton of times. But ultimately, I just thought that menus were really uh, hindering to people. Because even if I tell you, you don't have to make everything in this menu, it's really tough to look at a menu and be like, but what else do I do? And I was like, okay, well, then I'll just make suggestions. So throughout the book, there's like sporadic suggestions on like what I would serve this with. But they're just to kind of get your mind going on on how to construct a dinner. They're not meant to be focused as menus. And I think a lot of entertaining books start there. I also think a lot of entertaining books will tell you all the things you should, you know, worry about, like the cutlery and the plateware and where and whom to sit next to whom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having a theme and having a this and having a that. And I don't know, like that seems fun. Don't get me wrong. I will absolutely go to a themed party if mm-hmm. you invite me to one and I will kill it. <laughs> but 
I feel you're not throwing one. I mean, my theme parties are very vague. I'm like, oh, come over for like Eastern European steakhouse night. And Mm -hmm. all that means is that like we're going to eat a lot of sour cream and like (laughs) fish eggs on stuff. I don't know. It's kind of a theme though. Yeah. It's like a general sort of encouragement. But yeah, I don't think that's what people would immediately come up with when they thought of vague. (laughs) That's pretty (laughs) Eastern European steakhouse. Well, I mean, in that like that, like I keep like, I'll call it something, but Mm -hmm. you know, well, eh, whatever. (laughs) It's unfussy themes. Right. You know? right, Right. Would you ever throw a party with like name tags, name plates? Mm-hmm. Oh my god, no! That would stress me out so hard. I've been a part of those parties where mm-hmm. like I'm cooking or it's a part of an event that I'm doing, but the idea that I'm going to tell who to sit next to whom, ah, uh, no thanks. What if you have huge clash potential though? Don't don't invite those people. <laughs> there, or there set is up an potential. Art. There, well, that is a game I love mm-hmm. to play, and I have won many times. Mm-hmm. I've also mm-hmm. lost mm-hmm. a few times, but not because of me. Um, <laughs> not my fault. Not my fault. I did no. my best. And I actually have a really good success rate with setting people up. Mm-hmm. I uh, I feel like... Eastern European setup. Night. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Brought to you by the makers of Eastern European Steakhouse. <laughs> if you're unsure about the guest list, make it over six. Don't invite six people where you're like, I'm not sure how this is going to go. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, if you're going to invite people that don't know each other, make it like an eight to 12 person party. Mm-hmm. So there's enough buffer room. Right. And I think... That's a great tip. And the book actually has a bunch of other tips that does make it more. It is helpful for people trying to entertain. Mm -hmm. Like there's a tip about always having maybe a hunk of cheese out when people are coming over. So like when the two people who show up first and don't know each other and it's really (laughs) awkward, like at least they can. They can talk about cheese. They can talk about cheese or something like that. Yeah. It's like a instead of having like a here's what you need in your pantry to make yourself a good cook. It was more of like. Here's what you should have in your pantry to make having people over easier. And yeah, having like a big hunk of Parmesan in your fridge at all times because not only can you cook with it, but mm-hmm. you can also just eat it. <laughs> so let's say that you don't have no other snacks and like the chicken's still roasting or whatever. You're like, ah, Parmesan snack and set that out. And I feel like people, I would be really happy with that. Do you think there's something about this generation that gloms onto this idea of the more casual versus like the Martha Stewart generation? Mm-hmm. Is there something going on with like millennials or Gen Z that you think f- fits into this? I don't know what it is. I honestly think that people are just tired of spending money at restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people want to make stuff again. I think that we spend so much of our time in a space where we are obsessed and married to our phones and computers and email and constantly engaging with something that's like not totally real. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think everyone's a ceramicist now. And that's why I think everyone wants to make a dinner party because there are things that you can make with your hands. There are things that are real. There are things that you can learn how to do, put the effort in and see a result. That's why people like making bread now. It's like a whole back to the land thing. Like, so we can take a picture of it on our phone. (laughs) Back to land, kind of. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like I've always been that way. I mean, I'm definitely addicted to my phone and I spend way too much time on my email. But I feel like me entering the food space was was a way to focus my energy and creativity Mm -hmm. into something that like was decidedly not tech based. Mm-hmm. Did you write somewhere that the most important part of a dinner party is a Polaroid camera? I may have. <laughs> I have three of them. So that, that Sounds could right. be something I've said. No. If somebody else said it, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, my cynical take is kind of that the new show of the new display of value is that photo of you and your friends at home eating instead of at a restaurant. So I don't actually think uh, – the aspiration. You know, well, it definitely separates the, I'm going to botch this, but there's a euphemism, separates okay. the wheat from the chaff or mm-hmm, something like mm-hmm, that, yep. which is something that I'm actually quite pleased about, right? Mm. Because <laughs> so like five or six years ago, you could become really successful on the internet in like the food 
media world or just whatever if you just went out to eat a lot, which means that you probably had a lot of time and money. And money. Mm -hmm. And you didn't know how to have to do anything. All you had to do is have the money and the time and nowhere to go. Which yeah, is and pretty then you easy. can say like, I went to Arpege. And, and blah, then, blah, blah. yeah, so you take a picture of it, post on the thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I feel like you got to actually do the thing. Yeah. You got to actually make the thing. Yeah. And so for something like a recipe to achieve any sort of status, it's like you actually have to put in the work. So you are seeing people do stuff. It's not performative. It's like they're cooking yeah. the thing and presumably right. eating it. Like and I spend time to make this thing. Yeah, like there's something to me that has a lot more integrity about cooking at home and being proud of that and taking pictures of it, which is why that's not annoying to me. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or, or at least it's an effort. I think the internet and social media blurred the lines between the producers and the consumers. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of consumers started believing they were producers just because they were where all the producers were. Yes. And at least in this case, you actually have to produce something even if it's awful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to put yourself out there a little bit. Yeah. So all cynical takes aside, we're moving in the right direction. I yeah. totally agree. I think it's great. And I, I enjoy it even when people, you know, something doesn't look exactly at the picture or whatever. But if they're like, this yeah. wasn't the prettiest thing, but I, I made it and I loved it. You know, like, that's really encouraging. Do you remember going to dinner parties with your parents when you were a kid? My mom threw a lot of dinner parties. Oh. Wow. Yeah. She had people over all the time. But we didn't call it dinner parties. Like. But it was just kind of she like... She also called it having people over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She, I owe her a lot of money for that. Um, <laughs> no. Um, I feel like she... I, I, when I grew up, it was, you know, every Friday or Saturday night, we were having people over. Mm-hmm. And it was nice because she never made me sit in the other room or I was often, you know, the only kid. And it was nice because I didn't have to go anywhere. Like, she wasn't mm-hmm. like, go in the other room or eat at a different table. Like, I was, I got to be a part of that engagement and environment and... I don't know. It's just the best way to spend time with people that you like. And I think that especially for her, when she had me, it was like, well, I'm not going to get a sitter so I can go out for two hours, race back and da, da, da. I'll just mm-hmm. have people over. Yeah. And so it made it easier, I think, for her. But also she really enjoyed it. She liked taking care of people. She still does. But, you know, enjoys that process of taking care of people and, and doing something nice for them in addition for it to being convenient if you have a kid to take care of. But mm-hmm. what were her dinner parties like? They were nice. They were a lot of candles. <laughs> a lot of Sade. A lot of like, um, not nice. like in a, not necessarily like in a sexy way, because, mm-hmm. but like in like a, I don't know. Like, like this will set, set the mood. Yeah. <laughs> Allison Roman, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. You guys are great. Yay. We'll be right back with the biggest stories of the week. Now it's the part of the show where Daniel and I discuss the biggest food stories of the week. We will separate each story with the sound of a ding like this. Let's get into it. Daniel, there was a viral tweet this week involving Panera and its preparation of mac and cheese. Yeah. I'm sure you're familiar, but for our audience. Super familiar. It's a video from TikTok that got um, promoted by Uberfax, which has a big following. So there's a woman who works at Panera. She walks over to a box of frozen mac and cheese. She takes out a bag. She brings it over to the circulator, which is basically a big tub of boiling water, sticks it in the boiling water, pulls it out, cuts the bag open, puts it in a bowl. There's your mac and cheese. My take on this is so boring. Yeah. I'm part of the, like, I don't know. I didn't expect Panera. I think Panera is really lame. I've never enjoyed a bite of food that I've I've had there. Disagree. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not someone who gets excited over, like, cheese cauliflower soup or cheese and broccoli soup, which is their famous, I feel like, is their sure, famous Sure, yeah. Thing. Yeah. So... I was at a mall over the holidays, mm-hmm. and all the options were bad. And then I went to Panera with really low expectations, and it was good. Wow! I, like okay. I served it on a plate. Yeah, I love and, plates. I don't know. It just seemed <laughs> like real plates, right. real stuff. It just seemed like a step above. 
But having said that, which I think is what they're going for, right? Like a, a step above the yeah. average fast food place. Why do you think this method is so funny? Because I can think of other ways that they would have um, defrosted, I guess. I guess people were surprised that they brought it in frozen, right? Pass yes. is such an easy thing to make that. Maybe it's the Panera puts everything in the real plateware. So they assume mm-hmm. they assume the chains that are one step up, like Olive Garden or Panera, have some sort of scratch method situation happening. Yeah. And they don't realize that actually this is just like fast food, that it's made, you know, in mass. It is. It's just fast food. It is. It comes in prepackaged. It's no different yeah. than an airline meal. I worked at Friendly's for so long. It was all like that. I think the grossest part of this thing is when it's all in the sealed bag and they cut the top off and it kind of just like leaks out a little it's bit. It's just like... And then it dumps... Yeah, it looks a little like... It looks pretty gross. Wet pet food, or but I mean, also with mac and cheese, like people are so used to growing up with craft mac and cheese, that's mm-hmm. pretty gross. What I find most interesting about the story is with the advent of social media, mm-hmm. um, and and you know, obviously uh, the workers' ability to document the back of house. It's crazy that you haven't seen more of these things. Like I think that this person, Bree, obviously is now in trouble. Right? She's fired. She's gone. Yeah. Right. So. It's That's amazing. why we don't see more of it. Yeah. Well, no, I was just thinking, yeah. But it's amazing how, like, I feel like I don't really know how a McDonald's burger is steamed. Uh-huh. You know? Like, get me in that, that tray and just don't show your hands. Right. Like, don't you show want, your you very want, like, so unique, many more TikToks. long, white nails or your name being breathed. Yeah. You got you to gotta <laughs> kind of keep it hidden. Yeah. You got to try a little harder at that. Maybe it's, she didn't care. Maybe she's like, fuck, I'm done with she this She wanted job. out of Panera. Yeah. She wanted sure. out in the most spectacular way possible. <laughs> And now she gets some internet fame and like people are behind her. It's we should also say that I think people were excited that it looked like they were cooking it sous vide. A lot of people were like, This is just sous vide. <laughs> right. Which it is. I mean, you're cooking something you're in a controlled cooking water something level. In, a, in a plastic bag. In a, in a <laughs> it's a little different though. But how how do you feel about the sous vide egg bites from Starbucks? Those have gotten a lot of attention. Listen, I have I had never heard about these bites. I've never tried them, but yeah. I read a piece on Eater about them, and now I'm fascinated by what them. What was the piece on Eater? Megan McCarran wrote yeah. a fangirl piece about the Starbucks egg bite. It's a protein-forward little snack from Starbucks. Okay, Starbucks PR person. <laughs> just Thank you so much for I that. I really I mean, I understand. It. So is a hard-boiled egg. That's not as exciting to me. I don't want to just pick up a hard-boiled egg from Starbucks. <laughs> I guess I wouldn't have picked up this thing either, except that I read there's like a huge community online that's obsessed with the egg bite. They're so it is so insane. I mean, they're tasty, but like, see, <laughs> is there is there cheese in it? It's there's egg and cheese, cheese in most of them, and yeah. then there's like a ve- or like a turkey, uh-huh. a real paleo Sorry, back turkey to your spinach. Point. No, it's just like. The sous vide thing has gone crazy. The sous like the fact that they're calling them sous vide egg bites when sure they are technically sous vide, but then they put them in their like amazing industrial high powered microwave. Yeah. Is <laughs> it's just it's I mean, like, who cares if it's sous vide at one step of the process? I don't know. You know Maybe what I some mean? People <laughs> you're a marketing person at Starbucks and you're just like, I Oh God, I'm what do we call this thing now? <laughs> Oh, I know. Sous vide. Let's see I people like that. I don't blame them at all. Yeah. I don't blame Starbucks at all. I just think... Should Panera call their sous vide mac and cheese now? I think they should lean percent. into it. Yeah. The, I thought As for sure. As seen on TikTok? Oh my God, <laughs> that should be their marketing campaign. They should do it in front. Like they should do it as part of the show when you order the thing. Well, now they like, should. One up, now and then that they they've bring been out exposed. the big scissors and... 
I love it. All the responses to the tweet are very funny. And there was one little side conversation about what Olive Garden does. Mm. And a lot of Olive Garden's ex-staffers saying like, oh my God, Olive Garden's disgusting. And this is how the, the breadsticks are mm-hmm. made. And, and then some people responding just like refusing to believe it. Really? Like absolutely not. Olive Garden makes everything from scratch. And if it's not done that day, they throw it out and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, girl, I'm sorry. What? Yeah. <laughs> Olive Garden truthers? Yes. <laughs> are you kidding? Are you kidding? People really love that place. Uh, I'm joined by Chief New York critic Ryan Sutton, frequent collaborator, frequent guest of the show. Ryan, welcome. Hello. <laughs> Something that we talk about constantly is this new wave of like ultra high-end sushi restaurants that have touched down in New York City. I counted them up. There are since... Over the past five years, mm-hmm. uh, there have we have seen the debut of at least ten restaurants that serve omakase menus, where you will spend over three hundred dollars per person, and that's usually only with like an extra like one or two drinks. Yeah. So chances are you're probably going to pay more. Um, I know in my most recent review, uh, I believe it's Sushi Nice. It's three twenty-five. Service included, you're probably going to spend closer to $400 with drinks. And mm-hmm. I believe at Noda, or in fact, I don't believe, I know, <laughs> the menu is 285 but you have to add tip. And so it's around 342 add on tax and three drinks. Three yeah. drinks is going to add on about 90 bucks. So you're easily close to $500 per person, which is three drinks at Noda and Flatiron. And these are both very good, very expensive mm-hmm. places. But when you are paying such a high price, you're typically in a room... In, a, in an intimate bar with like eight, maybe 10. And when you are in such close quarters with those people, you often overhear a lot of what people are talking about. And you often, if when you get obnoxious diners, uh, you often feel you feel their presence more so than you would if they were somewhere else in the restaurant. And there was something that we often talk about, which is this idea, the sushi bro. There are people who are constantly just talking about the other places that they've hit. And I will say, I get it, because being at one of these high-end sushi restaurants, the most obvious thing to talk about is the other high-end sushi experiences that you've had. Right? Is it? I mean, I would argue that the, the, the right thing to talk about is nothing at all and enjoy <laughs> your meal because yeah. this is like theater. And while watching theater, you don't have intimate discussions with your dining companions. But right. I, I say that in that formally stilted voice because I know it's it, it sounds a little bit weird, but I believe in it. Uh, yeah. But you're right. And I think the way you phrased it is really spot on because, you know, when the sushi bro is not the drunk salary man, and it usually is a man, mm-hmm. um, you know, chugging beer or sake or what have you and, and acting like and acting boorish. Yeah. Uh, the sushi bro um, is more of a manifestation of performative connoisseurship. Yeah. Letting people. There you go. Letting people know that you have an exceedingly nuanced view of this. <laughs> Very traditional and yeah. very serious cuisine. Yeah. You've been to Masa, and when you say you've been to Masa, yeah. and let the record state, I was at Sushi Naz, and somehow it got out that literally everyone in the room had dined at Masa. When you do that, you're letting people know that you're good to spend, I don't know, $1,000 per person on a two-and-a-half-hour meal. It's a fantastic flex, as it's the a, kids are saying. It's a super flex. It's yeah. the sushi version of saying... I can drive a Ferrari, yeah. and I'm cool. Now, of course, Masa, they serve good food there, right. um, and I'm, I almost 
I feel weird about saying I've dined there. Uh, of course, it was part of my job. But yeah, the sushi bro is not about, you know, the boorish person. Uh, the sushi bro is someone kind of intruding upon your meal, flexing their wealth, and interrupting you constantly yeah. when you're trying to enjoy your meal. Because again, as I said in my review, you get 21 bites of steak, but you only get a single bite sometimes of toro or baby sea bream. And you put it in your mouth and you want to close your eyes and you really want to understand it because sometimes the differences between one piece of sushi and another isn't like the difference between, I don't know, a dish from Alinea or a dish from the fat duck. They're not great differences. These are nuances. Yeah. And you have to close your eyes and say, wow, maybe I get this or maybe I don't, but I appreciate it. It, and yeah. it can be super tough to do that when the guy next to you is like, isn't that great? Yeah. That was so good. Have you good had as, anything like that? That was just as good yeah. as the last Toro I had at Sushi <laughs> So I'm like, guys, just there, there yeah. should be a rule. Don't talk to people while they have food in their mouths. Wait a bit. Obviously, it's for your job. I'm just somewhat frivolous, but we've both had a fair amount of these high-end sushi experiences. And without fail... And I don't like. I know that this is clearly very anecdotal, but without fail, you will hear people con- comparing their high-end experiences, their their hit list, their kill list. There's nothing wrong with having an intelligent discussion uh, about the subtleties, uh, and that's ultimately uh, what a lot of sushi is about. Uh, it's not so much art, and I don't, I don't mean that disrespectfully. It's more about craft. And to understand this craft, you have to have some you know knowledge, and you have to have dined at these restaurants. Um, you can't read about how the you know, it's it's very hard to read about how precisely the sushi is different uh, at Noda, Tumasa, Tzu, Tanaz. You mm-hmm. kind of have to experience it, and you kind of have to feel it. And one of the best ways of understanding anything in this world is to have the conversation about it. Yeah. What I'm just saying is that it would be nice if these conversations <laughs> were. And I'm, I'm 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 this is a bit of a wonkish argument. If they could happen, well, you don't have food in your mouth, and they can if they could happen in such a way where they didn't feel. Yeah so much as a flex, as an, as an honest conversation. Uh, and it's just weird when you literally encounter this at, uh, I can say, you know, we, Dan, you and I have been eating sushi for a long time. Someone's going to ask you about how you like that piece of fish. Probably at least 60 to maybe even 75% of the sushi meals you happen. It's been happening to me for over a decade and it doesn't happen at any other restaurant which is crazy. And of course, it's all because everyone is crammed at a single bar and everyone has money and they're eager to show up their knowledge. And of course, less cynically, they're, they're eager to have a conversation about something they love. And in terms of interrupting you, they may be speaking to you directly or they may just be loud enough talking about these things that they're, we're so used to that you cannot not listen to it. You cannot disengage. Precisely. You know, I was uh, when I was at Noda, uh, it was uh, the guy next to me, and he wasn't, you know, speaking at 100 decibels or anything, but he was just both either speaking to me or speaking to no one the way that, you know, you're at a sports bar, and a guy is, you know, sh- shouting out athletic gobbledygook at the, you know, the, the nearest flat screen television. Uh, it's It can be hard to concentrate in that way. And it's, again, just another example of, you know, that performative uh, connoisseurship and the inability to engage in theater (laughs) uh, in the way that most people engage in theater, which is by watching and not by interacting, um, mostly. That is the people of sushi part one. The people of sushi part one. Thanks for chatting with me, Dan. (laughs) Next up, this story is fascinating to me on so many levels. Uber Eats has teamed up with celebrity chef Rachel Ray to send out a whole bunch of Rachel Ray food from Uber Eats certified ghost delivery kitchens. Around the country? 13 cities. Rachel sends her recipes to Uber Eats. They use their ghost kitchen to make the recipes, and then they send you her food. Yeah. 
Why would you do that? Who? The consumer. Why would people? people because because, like, because these people like these are these food wise. So disconnected. No, no, no. But this is such an important part of it is that food wise, Rachel Ray and 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 character wise. Uh, Culture-wise, Rachel uh-huh. Ray is the hero for a lot of people. We oh, no, have the no. op- I love Rachel Ray. This Do is you? not. A, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, hu- huge Rachel Ray. You fan. love Rachel oh, Ray? My God. Yeah. Don't get me wrong about why I'm questioning this. It's just like I think it's so disconnected from the talent. Okay. Yes. Because but. it's not like going to Rachel Ray's restaurant, which I could understand if if the news was Rachel Ray opened a restaurant in Atlantic City. Like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Rachel Ray fans can go there and get some approximation of what she's doing because she's at least there training the people. Maybe sure. even she's there sometimes. Maybe sure. she's decided, like Bobby Flay's like, I'm in the kitchen at Gato. I'm here. Okay. <laughs> um, but her sending her recipes to ghost kitchens, not even, not even John George, who has a gazillion restaurants around the world and he sends them their recipes. At least he's their real dedicated kitchens with the best cooks in the world working at them ideally right <laughs> who's sure. even working at the ghost kitchens they're not aspiring ghost? to anything yeah, we don't, this is not like something you put on your resume they're just hiring labor who are meant to do a thing yeah. they're just like how many times can you flip the spatula per hour yeah, that's yeah. how they're looking yeah but, I think you're right i think this is like mm-hmm. if rachel ray were opening a chain of restaurants in airports across america it's worse how is it worse it's same, worse same for her thing. it's worse for her oh yeah why would she do it why would know. she do it? Because why it's a would huge. She, why would she do it? The head of Uber Eats said that they don't care. Basically, what did they say? She won't share the financial agreement around the partnership, but suggests that the company is willing to lose money on this initial endeavor, as they are on most endeavors. They they are probably caking up Rachel Ray hard for this, giving her bundles and bundles of cash. I understand why she would doing it. It's just just for the money. Yeah, I mean, obviously, but. But Rachel Ray is known as someone with simple recipes. If people want to try a Rachel Ray thing, just make it at home. That's why she's so good. You like Rachel Ray? That's interesting to me. I didn't know that. I, you know, I was. <laughs> you want to talk about more why I like her so much? Why do you like her? Why so don't much? you like her? I don't like her. I like Thirty Minute Meals. I thought it was a new, interesting take yeah. on a cooking show. When I have watched her program, I her her recent talk show. Uh-huh. In my opinion, she doesn't seem like she's into it. That's my that's my oh, opinion. She's not, you don't think she's selling it? I don't think she she clearly doesn't care. In my opinion, she clearly doesn't care anymore. Wow. And she is that. just there for the Uber Eats paycheck. Oh. Is that harsh? Maybe. I don't know. I haven't watched her talk show recently, but I just I love her. Why do love you love her? 30 minute meals? So did I. Yeah. Love her for that. Why do you okay, that's it? I can still I can continue to love her because of 30 minute meals. With all that in mind, here is a phenomenal spin by your friend Rachel Ray. A sardine sandwich, a four-day porchetta. I could never teach that on my show or in my magazine, Ray says. A virtual restaurant gives me a more specific relationship to people in my audience. It's me joining people for dinner. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sold on this idea. Yeah. I would much rather she did airport restaurants. Um, you know who else is doing a virtual restaurant? Who? Bon Appetit. With, the magazine. With magazine, with Grubhub. What do you think about that? Similarly not impressed. Yeah. <laughs> weird, right? I think it's weird for brands, whether it's a magazine or a celebrity, sure. to do this kind of like fake restaurant thing. 
I guess the difference is I'm assuming slash 90% sure that the food coming out of the Rachel Ray system will be awful. And I, I think that if you have one kitchen, there's a chance that it could be pretty good. I think if the food that Bon App sends out is a disaster, I think it'll be a disaster for them. Like fire festival, fire fest level embarrassing if the food comes it, to people and it's a they joke. They care more than Rachel cares. They have to. I think they both care. I think that the people are going to be are going to scrutinize the Bon App food a lot more than the Rachel Ray food. I think the Rachel Ray food might hit more people, so there's more risk. I think there's She's enormous have a risk. Broader reach. That's than exactly. Gonna it's, have. it's much harder to control. Here is one more twist for you. You have another twist. Another to the story? twist. Our old friend Travis Kalanick, the former CEO of your and founder. He's not my friend. Not my friend. <laughs> he is now involved with this program because he has invested a lot in something called Cloud Kitchens. Mm. which sets up virtual kitchens across the country for ghost kitchens to form and sell food on Uber and also like catering operations and stuff, commissary kitchens. But basically like we work for kitchens. So you can rent space and have Uber kitchen space. Uber is a client of Uber Travis Kalanick's is now new company. <laughs> a client of Travis Kalanick, of a company that Travis Kalanick has invested oh, heavily in called Cloud Kitchens. In a previous article... It was said that he was stealing a lot of Uber employees or like poaching a lot of Uber mm-hmm. employees mm-hmm. and they had like, I don't know, fired back at him legally or something saying you can't keep Yikes. coming after Uber employees. The The head of Uber Eats said, we have a longstanding relationship with Travis, says uh, Salonave with a laugh. We are partnering with his kitchens on the platform today. <laughs> <laughs> what a laugh. Daniel, did you hear that Walmart wants to deliver groceries straight to your fridge? <laughs> no, I did not hear that. <laughs> How are they going to do that? How are they going to get in my fridge? I lock my door. Uh, well, I think you give them permission. They will sell you. It's, it's called the new in-home service. It's a membership program that costs $20 a month. Mm-hmm. You get a $50 smart lock or smart garage door kit. So you have to get that. So okay. you, what you would do, Daniel, is you would put the smart lock on your door so they can come into your house, mm-hmm. and you would be letting in the body camera-equipped delivery employee into your home when you're not there, and they would put all of your groceries in your fridge for you. Yeah. That- the body cam is live streaming and recording, so if you want to watch them <laughs> while they're in your home, you can. You are going to sign up, right? Honestly, sure, because <laughs> Amazon launched a similar thing in 2017, so this is not new. It's just continuing. This is like the creepiest thing. It's I've... so it's so creepy. Walmart, for some reason, is so much more creepy than Amazon, too. I don't know. I think Amazon is so creepy. Because <laughs> Amazon, people already have their homes all wired with this Amazon stuff, and they're like, eh, just give us the key just put a lock on your door yeah do you think when the amazon employee walks in it's like welcome friend yeah totally (laughs) i mean it makes sense that they would deliver the the groceries straight to the fridge because it 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 helps them with refrigeration right like Mm -hmm. if they leave a box outside then it has to be cold makes it much more difficult yeah the big issue with grocery delivery is you have to have someone home yeah so this solves that what if we start a service what if we start a service where you email eater and you tell them you give us a sense of what kind of restaurant reservation you're looking for Mm -hmm. 
how many people, you know, what's the vibe? And then we have a service where it's a body cam streaming. They go in your house and they drop off uh, hard copy printed three or four restaurant options <laughs> just on your kitchen table. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Something that I'm not excited about seeing is there's going to be a lot of problems with this body cam streaming thing. Like, you know, people are going to have to pee or something is going to go wrong in someone's house. Or like people are gonna like their fridges are just gonna be too full and they're gonna drop eggs and then like the fridges are definitely gonna be too full. But it's <laughs> like, just like <laughs> could you imagine that job? You're just like in people's gross ass fridges trying to find room for the milk. Ugh, and something smells. There's a dog. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, the dogs. What are you gonna do about the dogs? There's just so many things that can go wrong. People's houses are so creepy. Even like I go to someone else's house and I don't know where they put their forks and I was like, kill me now, you know, like that. <laughs> I don't want to go through all your drawers. I don't want to go through your drawers. Why are there whisks in here? <laughs> you know, can I give you why an do you organizational need 20 pairs class? of extended chopsticks? You know, yeah, like I don't want to see people's junk drawers. No. I don't see what's in their freezer. No. Why do you still have DVDs? Like, do you want to see anybody's freezer? I like looking immediately, we've talked about this so much at nauseum, but I like immediately like going into people's fridges. Yeah. I go into fridges, people's fridges, way prematurely. Someone I mean, wants... this could be a job for you, I guess. <laughs> but you can't... When, when the media empire collapses, you could always be a... I wouldn't be good at it, though, because I'm so obnoxiously curious that I would eventually... I would walk into a place, someone's house, and it had, like, a big shiny box that says, like, don't open this box, and I just <laughs> would not be able to help myself. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Eater's Digest. Big, big thank you to Allison Roman, whose book, Nothing Fancy, comes out on October 22nd. Also, big thank you to Misha Shital, who wrote the piece on Vox.com about dinner parties. You can check it out on Vox.com. Thank you to Martha Daniel, our producer. If you like the show, please, please share it with one friend. And if you have any feedback or thoughts or questions or have anything you would like Daniel and I to tackle, send us an email at digest at eater.com. See you next week. more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.